A warm welcome to another Tennis Takeaway podcast with me, Barry Milnes, and my partner in crime, Barry Cowan. Today, we are going to first talk about Indian Wells. What an amazing start to uh, the Masters 1000s from the men's point of view, and of course, a, a premier mandatory event for the women. And on both sides of the fence have been some extraordinary matches, performances, and ultimately, two new champions and we're delighted to uh, welcome to the podcast Nick McCarvel the American tennis journalist and broadcaster he's been working on the uh, radio for the BNP Paribas Open over the past uh, 12 days or so so Nick I hope you've got a bit of voice left and it's a, a bright morning for you in California yeah no it's just past uh first off thanks guys and I, I feel like this is maybe the easiest podcast I've ever done if I say thank you Barry then uh <laughs> I've gotten it right <laughs> you've done well yeah yeah I, that's that much I have in line, but no, it's a uh, Monday morning here. And I, I just feel like at least, you know, locally the feeling is sort of of um, elation. It was a great couple of weeks. I think they had tournament attendance records and, you know, once again, they, they like to call it uh, tennis paradise here, but it was a great two weeks. It was actually a little bit chilly. Um, the weather was a little bit cool, which was strange in the desert, but we made do. And yeah, I mean, I feel like we ended up with some really great storylines on both the men's and women's side. And you had this sort of sense of these established stars that made good runs here, but um, also some new stories, which was great. Well, I guess we have to kick off with the teenager, 18 years of age, Bianca Andrescu from Canada. She's got Romanian heritage, of course, as well. But to go through the draw as she did and to win the matches in the way she did and kept on finding that extra kind of reserve, not least in the final against Angelique Kerber, Nick, it was extraordinary. It really was. And I don't know when I'm going to learn or when any of us are going to learn to sort of doubt, uh, stop doubting the underdog because she, um, Bianca came into this tournament as a wild card, having had success um, in a challenger series uh, prior to this. And, you know, she made her way through the tournament and I think it was even against Muguruza. I think a lot of people felt like, okay, she's had a good run and now Garbini is sort of going to take care of her. And, and we all know how that worked out. It was uh, one game lost for Andrescu, who then was so impressive against Svitolina. And then I was I was courtside, you guys, for both the semifinal finish against Svitolina and the final finish against Kerber. And I think what impressed me most is, uh, you know, just her willingness to put her foot on the gas at the finish line. Because I think oftentimes we see in the women's game that maybe those highest stakes matches don't necessarily bring out the best tennis. I think that's what, what's been really refreshing about Naomi Osaka. That's what makes Serena Williams such a great champion. Um, that's how Wozniacki won the Australian Open. She played aggressive at the finish. That's how Angelique Kerber won Wimbledon last year. That's how Simona won the French. But Andrescu, time and time again, was aggressive at the finish line. She mixed the balls up. She was so mentally strong, and I just have to say it was a joy to watch her from up close. We had her a few times on tournament radio, and she is mature. She's got a great team around her in Sylvain Bruno, and um, her daily meditations, she told us, uh, serves her very well. So um, I think we all need to apply now a morning meditation to <laughs> our bet. Nick, <laughs> how much a part did the crowd play in that third set? Because she, she looked like she was down and out. But they they were really behind her, weren't they? Yeah, and I hope you guys can't hear the weed whacker. I was joking about it, but now it's a little bit loud. <laughs> um, California California problems. Um, that's a really great question. The crowd was huge. And I actually have to say, um, 
I did a lot of around the grounds radio um, live crosses throughout the tournament. And uh, honestly, I didn't, I mean, I think I spoke mostly to Canadians. I don't know what the tournament numbers are here, but you've got a lot of snowbirds who come to this area for the winter. And then I think you have a lot of people who would travel here versus the U.S. Open because you get the sunshine, you get to escape winter, and you get to sort of avoid the hubbub of New York. Um, The crowd was massive. It, It was a home crowd, and it was also a crowd, I would say, for Andrescu, who were so excited for her. Um, and I, I just would say too, from courtside that Kerber, Kerber just took her foot off the gas. She had, she had a break in the third set. She was in control. She was, you know, the more experienced player in her, her 29th WTA final or her, you know, 29th final while on the WTA. And she just, she didn't come across the finish line strongly. And I don't know if you guys heard, but Andrescu had a coaching timeout with Bruno. Mm, I was going to say it was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. That was the moment, wasn't it? Because at 3-1 up, you know, and a and, uh, break up for Kerber in that final set, and she's already come back, got the second. She had the momentum, and you just thought, well, experience now is going to see her through to her first uh, mandatory title. But that intervention by the coach was absolutely key because it did seem to me that Andrescu at that moment was close to sort of almost panicking about it, and his intervention made, made it, turned it the other way. Uh, I'm actually getting chills sort of just thinking about it because I think so often the coaching timeouts can be negative or a players in a, a tough position and that's what Andrescu was in but what I loved about Silvan Bruno who we got to speak to as well on tournament radio was he let her vent he he uh, acknowledged her frustrations and then he, he just sort of put these words in her ear as to there's there's only a few more games left in your tournament and you can either win them or you can lose them and she took that to heart. I mean, you can tell that they're a great team. You can tell that she's obviously a great learner. I mean, you could see before our very eyes that she was learning in the moment. Mm. And she just went for it. Which and is what the was... great champions do, Nick, isn't it? Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm honestly getting chills just thinking about it because we just haven't gotten to know her yet. And people are trying to compare her to... Uh, you know, her game style to who does she play like and, and what kind of player is she? And I just feel like she's her own tennis player. And, and yeah, it was delightful. And then her celebration. And I mean, uh, the WTA was telling me, I think she had some, something like two hours of media after, I mean, the, the interest will be, will be massive. I'm doing a radio show in, uh, for Edmonton later today. <laughs> so you, you know that she's getting a national star now. <laughs> well, she's, she's come through, in this way, I mean, her ranking a year ago, you know, was way down. But here she is now. She's got inside the top 50. I mean, she's, what is it, up to 24 in the world? Something like that. An incredible rise from her. 12 months ago, we were all in awe of Osaka and what she did. And, of course, look what she's gone on to do since. Nick, Barry, what do you think of her prospects now? Just 18, but to have achieved this so young. She's going to go the whole way, Barry. When, when you watch her quality, when you watch her determination... I loved her when she was so open with her coach. She said, I just want it so badly. Yes. You know, and, and it's nice to, to hear those refreshing views. But technically, she's good. I mean, not only does she, she hit a lot of pace, but she gets her weight through it. You know, and as Nick rightly said, it was all about her taking control of the moment. And, and the women's game is changing in front of our eyes. The new type of woman, female player, they serve great. And they're very, very aggressive. And she fits that mould along with Osaka, along with Zabalenka. You know, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if 
later on this year, she had a, a major where it, she showed the same sort of tennis. I think it will be very difficult for her in the short term to, to repeat what she achieved yep. um, at the weekend. And funnily enough, actually, she might have to play Kerber in the third round. But, <laughs> but that was no luck. To, to do what she did at, at her tender age, I think it just gives her all the, all the confidence of what she could achieve in, a, in, a, in her career. Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree. I think I would say that she might have a little bit of a sophomore slump, say, in the coming weeks. But I think, to me, uh, what really stands out, Barry, you even mentioned it there, is the serve. Because mm. she's, not a, she's not a big girl whatsoever. I mean, she's not tall, but she's just so strongly built. She uses her legs really well. And um, I-, I think off of the serve, uh, there was something like, I think she was only broken 20% of the time. She ha- She held 80% of her service games. I think the WCA average is something like, 67 or 70 percent and so that's a big I mean that's a big margin in the women's game especially in the sense of you've got her with a great return and yeah it just seems like she has all of the x factors taken care of and then you look at a team she sort of pointedly called out tennis Canada and Sylvain Bruno and and you know you don't necessarily think as Canada as a tennis powerhouse but look at it right now in the moment that it's having with her success with Felix Auger Aliassim with Shapovalov um, and so obviously whatever's happening uh, at their national academies and around the country, they have a, a good plan in place. And that, I think, is the difference, too, for a player once they have a big breakthrough, then to be able to follow it up. And I think she has those those pieces in place. She played with real clarity, I felt, and, and not just with a booming forehand behind the serve, but also that drop shot. It's incredible. I mean, the damage she did with it was amazing to see. I think we must give honourable mention, of course, to Svitolina and Bencic. They both had really good runs, didn't they? Uh, Bencic, uh, after what she did in Dubai, it's great to see her following up as well as she did. But Nick, what did you make of Osaka and Halep and those losses? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think for Osaka, I actually was... She didn't seem too concerned. And I think that Bencic was just playing so well, you guys. Uh, I mean, you know, I I don't think... Um, I would uh, raise any alarm bells with Halep just in the sense of, I don't know if this tournament necessarily suits her game that well. I mean, she's won it in 2015, but yeah, I, j- I just didn't feel any sort of panic from those losses. And um, Halep had a pretty bad blister, with which hampered her pretty badly. So no, I don't see, you know, I think we give all accolades to Kerber, to Svitolina, to Bencic for making the runs that they did. And I don't, I don't see otherwise. I mean, to me, maybe a little bit of alarm bells around Wozniacki and it's been a a really rough start to 2019 but yeah otherwise no I think you know Muguruza she had that one set against Serena Um, Venus was great Um, but yeah no I think otherwise you you just give your accolades to the best players and and then we move on. Okay well Andrescu the 13th different winner in 13 women's tournaments since the start of the year and on the men's side we've now had a 19th different winner in the first 19 men's tournaments. So amazing. Dominic team coming out on top in Indian Wells. Who would have thought that? Nick, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, uh, I certainly didn't. Uh, coming into the tournament, I did have to, you know, as Dominic team, I think he beat Gilles Simon like something like three and one in the third round. And, and that to me, I was like, wow, I mean, Gilles Simon, you know, plays a consistent brand of tennis. As we know, he gets everything back. He's tough on hard courts on any surface, really. But that to me sort of was like, oh, maybe Dami has settled in. And uh, actually, I got to do an exclusive with him after his win yesterday. And he, he said that he felt like he had a um, second training block for the 2019 season 
in Indian Wells. Mm. I think they showed up something like February 24, 25. And he's with his new coach, Nicholas Masu. And he just got settled in. He said he hit with every type of player. His practice sessions went well. He felt good. And then, guys, he just built on his confidence as the tournament went. And I think, you know, maybe he was served well somewhat by Monfils um, pulling out in that quarterfinal. But then you you have to give him credit the way that he finished that match against Raonic. And then, again, you look at what Andrescu did against Kerber. You have to say the team did the same thing against Roger Federer. He was aggressive down the, down the stretch. He went after his shots. And he he was the better player at the finish line. And, and Roger sort of said as much in his press and what a way for him to win his first masters 1000 on not a clay court yeah who would have thought that <laughs> everyone would have guessed that his first masters title was going to be on the clay and actually in the clay in the south american swing he was very poor mentally he was poor i think a lot of it was due uh, nick and barry to to the virus that he picked up um you know dominic doesn't do anything in half measures does he so i can imagine his his off season in in tenerife was full on and and the virus i think affected him then for for the the two tournaments in in rio and buenos aires but mentally he just wasn't at it but a big turnaround in in the, in the short space of uh, what a couple of weeks to play the way he did play and is the the link up with with masu is that because masu was a formidable clay quarter yet he had olympic success on hard courts is it that whole business of transferring from the main surface they've been known to play well on to the hard courts, which of course are so important to be doing well on if you're really going to the top of the game. Yeah, actually, that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly why he picked Masu, but it's obviously working, guys, so far. <laughs> Pretty um, good. But, but, but well, I... he basically reached out to him, didn't he, when um, Chile beat Austria in the Davis Cup? Yes. I think that was the time where he sort of gave him a call. I'm a, obviously, a coach, if a player wins a tournament, the coach has to get a lot of credit, but we shouldn't forget Gunter Bresnik because he's still very much a part of Dominic's career. And he's the yeah. one who's been there right from the word go. And it's amazing how sometimes that happens. You're, you're with the coach, and then, and then the coach just may, maybe takes a two-week two or a three-week breather. And then everything you've been working on just comes to the fore. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I just think it was kind of the perfect storm. Mm. And sometimes these players get sort of a magical glow around them. And, and not to draw parallels, I mean, Dominic Team won his 12th title. He's a top 10 player. He's a Grand Slam finalist. But the same way that Andrescu had a fairy tale run, I, I mean, I just feel like all the pieces came together for him. A lot of the players felt like these were playing like slower, slower hard courts. And so I think, you know, sort of that grainy, gritty, sandy surface on the hard court, I think that helped his ball. And also, you know, we're, we're higher elevation here in Indian Wells. So you liken it to Madrid, where he's made his two clay court um, Masters 1000 finals. I just feel like all those factors went into play. And then for whatever reason, guys, uh, Rogers just tripped up at the final hurdle. Now the four, he's made five of the last six finals here and four out of those five he's lost and again last year he lost to del potro i think he had at least one championship point um and this year he he was so close he had break point i think in the seventh or eighth game of that third set um but dominic team like andrescu used the drop shot really well and um you know just felt like uh, the perfect run for him and now how much does team take that confidence in the clay court season when you have Rafa injured in a sense, and there's obviously a great opportunity for him to build off of this. A real shame 
that obviously we didn't get to see Rafa taking on Roger once again. Everybody had been building up to that when they uh, drew closer and closer in the draw. Now we know that Nadal is going to miss Miami as well, that next time we'll see him, we'd be back on the clay, of course. Baz, do you think that you know Nadal's days on hard courts are going to be very restricted from here on? Because how many tournaments does he withdraw from these days on that surface? Yeah, he was even talking uh, about his schedule before Indian Wells, saying I might not play Miami and I might not play Madrid. Because what Rafa, you know, two parts, Barry, that Rafa's come to to realise that a his body doesn't allow him to play the same same schedule. And also, he doesn't have to play every single week. The feeling was a decade ago that Rafa had to play every single week and get a ton of matches behind him to play his best tennis. If, if that match against Rafa, uh, Roger had been a Grand Slam final, he would have absolutely played. Yeah. I, I think he clearly was affected by the tendonitis in his knee the day before against Hachanov. What, what desire and courage Rafa showed to win that match. I think disappointing for Hachanov that he wasn't able to, to capitalise. But I think since... It was a lot of common sense from Rafa. It's, well, I need to be 100% to beat Roger. It's Indian Wells semi-final. I need to make sure that I am 100% fit and raring to go for the start in Monte Carlo. And mm. I am 100% sure, Barry, he will be. OK. What about Djokovic? I mean, he went further in the doubles than he did in the singles. Was that a surprise? <laughs> Double specialist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course it was. I just think... Um... <laughs> You do wonder, I mean, you, we don't have to get in the politics of it. You do wonder how much all that ATP, you know, the board and the voting out of Chris Kermode, you wonder how much um, that played on him. You know, he's been he's been so much a part of that as the player council. He president. has, and we, mm. we talked about it in our podcast last week. But yeah, it, it must have had an effect, surely. But do you expect him to be back at it on, on song for Miami? Yeah, I do. I mean, honestly, it just was one of those Djokovic matches where I felt like he came out a little bit flat. And Cole Schreiber's just deadly in those scenarios. You know, the guy's made a living off of getting every ball back and taking opportunity when he can. And he did that against Novak. And, you know, I think, you know, really reveled in beating a number one for the first time in 12 meetings. And, no, I actually... You guys, for me, looking at the way that Djokovic did commit to the doubles after that, that made me feel even more so like, OK, it, you know, it is what it is. And he's moving on because I think he was out on the doubles court later that day, maybe an hour after a singles loss. I mean, he came and did press and, the, and then went right to doubles. And so, no, I, I don't physically, you know, there were there were no sort of uh, whispers around the grounds that this is sort of, you know, obviously 12 months ago, he was in a much different situation. Um, I will say, if I could, just on Rafa, um, you know, he's going to have to look at 2020 and, you know, maybe he plays Melbourne, Indian Wells, Toronto, New York. I mean, otherwise, he, he's just the body can't hold up on hard courts. And, and he was asked about it in press. And, um, you know, he said part of being a tennis professional, obviously, is playing on hard courts. But. I mean, he's he's made a career at, at what he's been able to do over the last 15 years. And I think he, he really might have to give up trying to do more than that because the body even so, I mean, look at his record the last three years on hard courts. He's pulled out of something, you know, like 90% of the tournaments. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the knees just aren't there uh, except for on the clay. Well, Nick, I know you've got to get on and we thank you very much for your time. Just before we let you go, if it's not going to be Andrescu and team in Miami, who might be a good pick outside to uh, come and uh, steal the show there? 
Oh, you guys are already making me make Miami picks. Absolutely. <laughs> We're not letting you get away with it. Is is this because the um, ATP radio standings just came out and I beat both of you in Indian Wells? Is that why you're asking? Excuse me? Uh, <laughs> excuse me. I don't think you did. I did, actually. I, I um, just edged you, Mr. Mills. Oh. Uh, by a few points. I'm going to talk to the referee about that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, I was just thinking... <laughs> Last year, we had Sloan and John Isner won Miami. Um, I, I don't even, I wouldn't even dare pick Sloan at this point because, she, you know, maybe alarm bells around her, but she's been able to uh, lose bad matches before and then bounce back like she did here. Um, I actually, in a sense, I feel like Halep could have a really good Miami on the women's side. She, she didn't seem too fussed about going, you know, not that she didn't care. Um, Gosh, and on the men's side, you know, I had picked Hachinov to have a big year, mm-hmm. and I, I think he could build off of, he was pretty bad leading into Indian Wells. He hadn't had a good season at all, and I think I think that tournament really built his confidence, guys, and I also think the fact that he was close with Rafa on uh, Friday, but not that close, uh, I think that's really going to motivate him. So I'm going to go Simona and Karen. Fantastic. Nick, cool. thank you so much for your time. Yeah, cheers, guys. Uh, happy, happy to be on. And, and again, congrats on the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, Basil, let's have a, a change of tack now and uh, turn to something rather different, but something a, a bit closer to home. Tell us more. Yeah, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was delighted that uh, I met an old friend of mine, actually used to train me for a short period of time back in, what, 1991, 1992. Jeff Thompson, MBE. There you go, he's MBE, services to sport. And Jeff is a lovely guy, but very inspirational guy. He's a former world karate champion, but he has got his finger in a lot of pies. He's a very inspiring guy, as I said. And he set up this uh, charity, Barry, over 25 years ago called the Youth Charter, um, basically to try and get rid of knife crime and gang warfare, which you know is pretty relevant, isn't it, with what's happening at the moment now around the country. And Jeff is now the chair of the Board of Governors at East London University. Jeff is very passionate about tennis. He knows a lot as well, given the fact that his sons have both come through the system. In fact, Jordan, his eldest son, is hoping to be a a boxing champion. But I began by asking Jeff about knife crime and why it keeps happening. It's almost the perfect societal storm, a cocktail of issues. And if you have educational low attainment, if as a result of that low attainment, your disaffection sees you excluded or expelled with no hope and opportunity, that that mindset changes. So your aspirations change and you become antisocial. And that's when the gang culture starts to seduce those hearts and minds. Once you go into that game, as they call it, the game, you are then taken through a journey which I have characterised as the University of Crime, where you develop all of that potential just for all the wrong reasons. That, by its own definition, and the drug trade is the major, I call it the pharmaceutical industry, but it is the major fuel of a lot of the violence. But in addition to that, there is a very worrying trend of a youth culture who haven't been given what I believe are the fundamental rights and opportunities of sport and the arts Um, and cultural activity playing a part in their mental, physical and emotional development. So what we have at this present moment in time 
are young people who don't have life resilience, who don't have any life um, characteristics that give them the confidence to suggest that they would need a knife to actually protect themselves. Whereas for me, it was the martial arts, it was combat sports that protected me in the East End of London with the National Front, what you looked out for, or the rival schools. And there were gangs then, but no lives were lost. So, uh, so what's changed? How did you get into martial arts and, and, and your friends? How did you distance yourself from the gang culture? Well, it, it, it wasn't distanced. Brookhouse Secondary was an all-boys school. Um, Hackney Downs was an all-boys school. Testosterone, postcodes, and rivalry. It's how you channel that energy. And what I believe then, and yes, if you don't have youth services, if you don't have um, youth workers, if you don't have facilities that give young people somewhere to go, so the Youth Charter has a simple three-themed approach, somewhere to go, you've got to get them off the streets. Once you've got them off the streets, you've got to give them something to do. Sport, art, culture, and even digital interactivity, esports, get them actively engaged. Now, once you've engaged them, you've got to give them someone to show them. Someone to show them is critical. What we do not have are relationships of authentic and genuine trust, confidence and respect. That's what the street elders are doing to seduce them. We need them um, equally to provide a counterbalance and alternative. And once you've got somewhere to go, something to do and someone to show them, you engage them, equip them and empower them. You engage them again with sport, art, culture, digital, equip them with the life skills, resilience and potential, then empower them with an aspiration of further higher education, employability, or entrepreneurship. You have to have a plan, you have to have a dream, you must, you must have an aspiration. And that hope and opportunity gives you the you know, secret ingredients, as you know and I, of any success is hard work. Whether you're intelligent, whether you're clever, whether you're smart, whether you're um, intellectual, hard work. If you put the hours in, you'll get something out. It might take you longer, and that's the other challenge we have now. Young people aren't mm. prepared to be persistent. They're not prepared to be determined. Yeah, why has that changed? Society's changed. We're a species. People keep, I think, really underestimating that fact. We're an evolving species. And I was training with my son recently, and he's a professional boxer now, former tennis protégé. But um, his intensity is there because it's been instilled by two former sporting champions who equally had challenging early starts to life. Both Janice and myself lost our fathers at a young age, and we had strong mothers, and they instilled that hard work resilience. We'll talk a little bit about Jordan later, your son, but you're talking about empowering people and, and seeing their, their, their mentality. I can't believe it's 25 years ago, the sessions that we used to have, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it brings a smile to your face. What, what are your memories? Because part of that team was Tim Hemman. And was, was that something that stood out for you straight away that he had the right mindset? It's always amazing, you know, you can have your psychometric tests, you can have all the tests in the world. And the, one of the great privileges I've had, you know, when you win and then you can help develop winners, it's a unique ability and privilege to have. And you go into any group of individuals and you always look for the person who just might have that extra something. And what are you looking for to suit that extra? I'm looking, I think, skills, talent and potential are something that's either inherited, worked at, honed, sharpened and polished. Ultimately, it was the mindset. And when I first patted you all as a, as a group, mm. Tim had something. It was, 
I, many will call it an edge. Many will call it something in the eye, between the eyes. But it was between his ears because he looked at the technique and he applied his technique to get the fluidity, the speed. And then when I intensified it, he dug in. And if you recall, you all had different behavioral personality types. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for. And you were all complementary to one another. And that's the skill. You've got to take the mindset, the will, the determination, and then polish, hone, and channel the aggression. Well, you were lost for tennis for a few years, but you came back a few years ago. Tell us the story, how you got back involved in British tennis. It was through my, my sons. The fundamental um, non-escaped requirement in our household is you've got to learn to swim, you've got to learn <laughs> to run, and you've got to learn to fight. And that came out of the, the stereotype when I was growing up that blacks couldn't swim. So I believed that nonsense. I went to the Caribbean, saw these kids who looked like me swimming for miles. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a massive culture shock. And it was that exclusion of not being able to swim, nearly drowning as a result. Yeah. And then it was a case of having to run in the East End when they chased you, mainly the National Front. But once you ran out of path, you had to stand and fight. So I said, swim, run, and fight. And then as they got to about 14... I said, you can try whatever you want, then you have to choose. And believe me, it was not the expectation that both my sons, Luke and Jordan, would want to play tennis. And I tried to dissuade them on the basis that I knew the, the glass ceiling could be double glazed. And, um, but, and anyway, Jan said, that's what they want to do. And they're all good athletes. And um, I think Janice spent three months. They're too old, you know, it's too late. And, um, then found um, a coach at the Northern. I'd done some work with the Northern. In Manchester. In Manchester, I'm sorry. And um, the boys started playing. And um, Jordan in particular, Luke's left-handed, got natural touch. But Jordan has the ultimate competitive warrior spirit. If he's at the back of a queue or a pack or a squad, he'll end up in the front very quickly. He's just got an innate gift to adapt to any sport. And um, started to progress through the ranks. Um, Started pushing through the county squads. In, in, in the Northwest. And then all of a sudden, it was a case, um, a very good um, family friend, Alex Adetovi, who'd played tennis with um, Monfils in, in France. Um, and he, he threw an injury, obviously couldn't play any longer, said, you know, I'll take Jordan to National Tennis Center, you know, to raise his aspirations. And he went to National Tennis Center and they told him he couldn't come in. And- um, Because? He just couldn't come in. <laughs> They just didn't give an excuse. Well, because he wasn't good enough, because he wasn't on their radar? No, he just, they just wanted to visit the National Tennis Centre just because, it, as Alex said, it will raise his aspirations. So um, Alex rang me, and um, at that time, Roger Draper had just become the new chief executive of tennis. He'd been a, um, a chief executive of Sport England. I'd served for 11 years. So I called him up and said, that isn't sport for all. And on the basis, if you want talent to actually grow in participation... You've got to open up your doors. So it's always the case. It's knowing somebody. They arranged for Jordan to visit. They put him through his paces, realised he had some potential. And then the next stage of his development um, um, took a turn for the good. But then I equally wanted to know my truth. So I, I contacted Tim. Tim took him to the Queen's Club, put him through his paces. David Felgate I'd reconnected with. And they said, he's got it, but he won't be able to achieve it here. You're going to have to send him to the States. And why did they say he wasn't, he wasn't going to be able to achieve it in this country? Because as I started to accompany Jordan, with Jordan to tournaments, the culture was just not welcoming. And that's the fact. 
um, became even more interesting when he went on the, the men's tour, being kicked off trains at 8.30 at night, um, tennis clubs that would put their shutters down when he walked through the doors, um, questioning his behaviours on court because they considered him aggressive. These were not stereotypically acceptable, mm. I think, um, behaviours. And Jordan's very much an introvert, never brought these frustrations to me, um, would tell his mother, who would obviously mention it to me. And then he, I think he just reached the point where I think there was a tournament in question. It was a question line call, but it wasn't about the line call. It was about the whole culture. And then he got a bad decision. He went, there's no way I can maintain this level of ambition if I'm not going to get the right support. And as you know, it's a very layered system. Mm. And um, he, I then, I think it was Wimbledon 2010, um, I knew Richard Williams through the Williams sisters, through the work of the Youth Charter, I work with South Precinct LA and with the Amateur Athletic Foundation, um, headed up by um, Olympic Committee Executive Member in Italy de France. And um, Richard Williams took him for a session and said, they've got it. How are you going to do it? Um, Tennis, the more successful you are, the more money you pay. <laughs> that was what was crippling um, the whole culture. So um, he walked away. He went to Spain, um, went there. But yeah, and he said it broke his heart. I said, well, find something that will give you the independence you require. So he went to the boxing ring. So the question would be, given the amount of money that the LTA get, why didn't they invest in him? If, if people have... Who, who know what it takes, Tim Hem and David Felgate saw potential, Richard Williams saw potential, why weren't the LTA prepared to invest in Jordan? I'd really like to think it wasn't because of me. I would still like to think it wasn't because of me. I think there were a number of factors. I still believe that the LTA do not have a good enough talent ID and potential um, program. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what do you, because talent ID is the big buzzword, isn't it, in sport? I mean, what does it mean? It means nothing. With all due respect, look at the 80s, our most diversely bemedaled era in sport. Not discounting Team GB's success in London 2012 and Rio 2016. But if you look at the money invested in those, those, those squads, they are predominantly within the sports where you ride you bike, do you understand me, you row, yeah. they, they require technical um, investment. Uh, with the exception of athletics and the combat sports, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, and Tim has talked about this, McEnroe has talked about this, Pat Cash has talked about this, you need a mixture of the classes. In other words, the raw, hungry, intense, athletic talent that can be complementary. As I said, when I saw all you boys when you were younger, there was a nice mix. There was one who had an edge. There was one who had the silky smooth movement, but the mindset. There were some trying to discover themselves. You've got Do you remember what you thought about me? I remember what I thought about you. You were very coy. You were just waiting to see what was going to come. And it told me tactically where you were at because you had a mature head, but you expelled your energy when you needed to. So that meant tactically on court, that's what you need. We are far too fixated on discovering talent. Talent alone won't do it. Potential alone won't do it. You need the hunger and desire within. And that doesn't come from a silky you know, environment that, that reflects the product of, of privilege. I'm sorry. 
90% of the world's winners have come from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds. I'm afraid that's the oddity that gives us that extraordinary edge and killer instinct. You use the word killer instinct now. Oh, what are you talking about? Winning's a ruthless business. However, the discipline and the routine and the habits and the structure and the mental, physical and emotional levels of just, I think, euphoric state, you know, that high, the natural high, I call it, is where we're not prepared to push. I went to the, what's the, the Bolton Arena, as you know, it was the high performance centre for a number of years. It went back down south. And all these machines, and they were testing the skills and the movement and the racket movement. And they said, what do you think? I said, well, where's the chair? And they went, what do you mean? I said, put a chair there, sit that youngster down and ask them, what frightens you? What excites you? What inspires you? What's your favourite book? Get to know the person. If you don't know the person, you won't know their potential. And that's what's missing. Find, find out the character and then you'll know what you're able to deal with. It's interesting you say that, Jeff, because that's the one thing that I felt from, from my career, that there were so few coaches, and I literally count them on less than five fingers on, on one hand, that actually wanted to know me. Well, it was, I mean, Alan Jones, Joe Drury, obviously that relationship, where for a while Jordan went and stayed with Alan. You know, you've got to know the person. If you don't know what frightens them, how will you know how to turn that fear you know that fear, that apprehension you have? How do you get all those butterflies all going in different directions in your stomach into one direction where you think, yeah, there's my moment of truth. You have to know the person. And I'm sorry, the LTA don't know their talent. They don't know them as people. You have to have that relationship. As I said, the social coaches, trust, confidence, respect. Knowing when the person's quiet, what that quiet means. Knowing when they're being extrovert, in, you know, some people behave differently under pressure, yeah. react and respond differently. And that's the difference of the session you might give. Because for, 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 for a session where they might just be pensive, well, you might just need to talk to them. You know, the session might be 15 minutes and the 45 of what it takes between the ears. The late Gordon Richards, one of the, Britain's greatest physical and mental coaches, was a guru and he had an immense impact on life. And he said 99% of it's between the ears. In terms of another big factor that's going on at the moment is bullies in sport, coaches. What do you make of that? Again, if you know the person and you know how far to take the person on the basis of their mental, physical and emotional limits, it cannot be bullying if that coach and athlete has trust. And if that trust is absolute, they won't, it won't be bullying so this is what happens when you don't have that relationship. So, so how do you define it? What, what, how do you draw the line? Because that's what people would want to know. What's, what's the difference between pushing and bullying? Pushing is when you know the athlete or the sporting um, talent well enough. And when the talent says to you, that's me. And the, you know, there are, there, are, there are sportsmen and women who say, I'm up for a session today. Take me to the hilt. Then you, and you say, how are you feeling? Nah, feeling, feeling rotten. The coach will know. And you, you're not, why would you want to deceive your coach? And why would the coach want to deceive you? It comes back to that relationship. We don't have relationships at the moment. People are getting, they're looking at the devices, they're looking at the technology. And I don't see any of that when the moment of truth arrives. Bullying in sport is never acceptable. Any good coach, any great coach will have that relationship, that special relationship. And that special relationship, Jan's coaching me at the moment, we have that trust. 
So and even when she's pushing me, I don't want to be pushed. Well, you're, you're in good shape, may I say. good shape at the moment. I'm doing something rather um, exciting on April 21st. I'm going to return to the competition square for the first time in 34 years. Um, because? Fight for the streets is for the issues of the youth on the streets. As you know, the youth charter signed up to by to over 250 sportsmen and women reflecting three or four generations. And it was that powerful symbol that saw the youth charter able to inspire a movement of sport for development for peace. It's the only thing I could think of to have something taken seriously enough. Why would I at 61 want to go and dance with those that are what? I'm giving 40 years away. And Janice, I think, I think she's got the insurance policy out, but she's, there, was a bit of, there was a bit of revenge there, but no. Um, she's taking me to levels where she said, I'll tell you when you're ready. She knows, and I trust her implicitly. You have to have that trust. You have to have that respect, and you have to have that confidence. If you have that, there is no bullying. They'll only, Gordon Richards used to take me through some sessions, and I thought, you've taken us to levels that would be considered, you know, it would be considered abuse. He said, the human anatomy can do anything you want it to if you've got it between the ears. And I would say, the fact that we find an excuse for everything now, we should find a reason for everything. Plenty of food for thought in that uh, really interesting interview, Baza. And what stood out for me, a couple of things, not least the fact of that getting to know the person when you're coaching somebody. It's all very well having people you know, adhere to what you're trying to put them through. But if you don't know who they are, what makes them tick, you can't get the best out of them. Absolutely. I kind of loved his line when he talked about talent ID, didn't he? And he said, you can shove all the talent ID out the window, get a chair and make him sit down and talk to them. And, and that is, I think, something that is missing, certainly in my sport, uh, tennis. Uh, you know, I look back now and I, th I still feel that the problems are there, Barry. That it, It's too much about your talent. Can you hit the ball? Um, your, your physical um, capabilities, you know, are you going to be six foot four? Or are you going to be five foot seven? But actually, you know, as we saw, didn't we, yesterday with Andrescu and Dominic team, so much of it is about heart. And, and the art of a great coach is understanding what makes that player tick. The trust, but, but you know, if the player says, you know, I'm not feeling it today, and, and Jeff talked about that, if I, if I don't feel like I can punch the clock and do three, four hours, you know, an hour and a half is, is, is better um, of real intensity than four hours of going through the motions. What else was of particular interest to you? I mean, I, I thought that the, the way he talked about the culture, how perhaps in past years it, it failed somebody like his son who clearly had immense talent who now is uh, as we know going on to uh, be a professional boxer succeeding in that but this whole issue of, of of a system a national system failing somebody like that from a, a background perhaps that not was not the elite background of of the old days are we still stuck in that kind of system i believe so wasn't it interesting when he said the better you get the more expensive becomes and it should be the total reverse, shouldn't it? Definitely it should, Bazza. Um, but obviously people spend a lot of time, a lot of money trying to develop systems. Yeah. And yet here we are in you know, 2019 still talking about an issue that you'd like to think you know, went out in the last century. Yeah. Well, I, I've always been really passionate about it and, and actually quite vocal about it with the LTA. And what, what is the role of any federation? Is it producing players? Or the role of the federation to get as many players 
playing the sport and giving them the opportunity to be able to succeed. For me, it's the latter. Well, I think we have a, a topic for another podcast, don't we? So great to hear from Jeff and, of course, uh, Nick McCarville before him. Um, hopefully, for all of you listening, I hope you've enjoyed uh, and found it interesting what we have discussed today. Any thoughts on some of the things that have been raised in uh, this podcast? We'd love to hear from you and you can get in touch with us via the twobarries.com. So until this time next week, from both of us, it's goodbye. Goodbye. <music>